The mystery of the most holy trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It is the mystery of God in himself. Hi, Father Abbott. Hi, Brother Israel. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Doing well. We're here about Angel and we miss you, Nelson. Too bad, but at least we can see you there on our screen. <laughs> oh, I miss you. I miss you both. I miss the whole community. How is everything going? It's been, what, three weeks now? I think it's the fourth week, isn't it? Yeah. Of school? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right? It's how is good? it going? Good. I'm teaching in a new way in the class that I taught you guys. I did it in concentrated chunks because... Um, I found that I was missing too many classes with my other duties as abbot. I was spreading it over the whole semester. So we've done about seven weeks of school already in four weeks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, wow. I think that's working. Good, good. And how do you like, how do you like that class? I know it's not as great as Brother Israel and Ben and Caleb in my class. Oh, but I told you guys what <laughs> I can tell these guys every year. It's wonderful for me to teach it because... When you think of how many times I've taught it, it's crazy that I'm not just tired of it, but I'm not. I love it. It's because the, the guys are new and they're ready to go. It's, it's great. How about you, Brother Israel? Uh, semester's off to a good start. I mentioned to you and uh, several of the other guys from last year, it's really unusual being back in school and not having all of you there. You know, it's different dynamics, different group. Uh, different feel to the class. It's it is uh it's going well though. It's lighter load gives us a uh, lighter workload gives us some time to work on our thesis. So that's what's been preoccupying me this uh, beginning of term. But what's great. your thesis? Uh, actually, the the master theme for today is going to tie in really nicely to my thesis. I'll be working with Saint Irenaeus and his uh, Trinitarian thought, Trinitarian preaching. Well, that yeah, ties into today's conversation, huh? Yeah, that's it. It was by an act of God, I think. So you're saying you're going to lead today's conversation? I, well, I did not say that. Well, he is. But, <laughs> but you're qualified, or you're getting qualified. <laughs> I'm becoming qualified. Well, in terms of qualifications, I think Abba Jeremy is the most qualified. So we'll, I'll get him started, and then he can lead us. Well, I think we should dive in. You can announce the theme, Nelson. Uh, Sounds good. So we're moving into the fifth master theme. And um, it's been a while since we last talked, but I, I listened to the last conversation between the two of you and Ben, and I was really edified by that. I was also called into a reality check. I realized that my conversation with Father Abbott and Caleb, the previous two episodes, <laughs> my questions had been really focused on kind of pragmatic things or practical things kind of things that I was dealing with on in my day-to-day -day life and of course I mean there's a place and a time for that but when I listened to your conversation for the habit with brother Israel and Ben I realized wow these guys are really deep <laughs> and so I I went and uh, took some time this week to to study this chapter so we're looking at the eighth chapter of your book Theology of the Eucharistic Table and the fifth master's theme is the manifestation of the Trinitarian mystery in the Eucharistic assembly. So I, I thought maybe a place to start is you say 
about three, three or four paragraphs in, you say, it is not my goal here to study Trinitarian doctrine as such, but more to look at the question of foundations. Where does this doctrine come from, the doctrine of the Trinity, and in what reality is it founded? So how about we start there? Yeah, well, uh, the reality in which the Trinitarian doctrine is founded is the celebration of the liturgy itself. And uh, once those foundations are clearly established in the life of the church uh, and under the pressure to articulate a coherent doctrine, it was, the, it was the experience of the church through the Eucharist that was always driving the doctrine. So once the doctrine's in place, there's lots of room for exploration of the Trinitarian doctrine or just also on the basis of the doctrine, Trinitarian speculation. But So that's not what this course is about. The, a deep account of the doctrine or an exploration of other themes on the basis of that doctrine. That's a separate field in theology and a beautiful field. But that's not what we're doing here in, the, in what's an introduction to theology class. What we're doing here is we're seeing how doctrine is rooted not in a bunch of people getting together and forming some abstract thoughts about God, but instead it's rooted in the church's experience of the sacraments, primarily of the Eucharist, which in fact, uh, the, the way we pick this apart is it's rooted in the shape of the prayer of the Eucharist, which the structure of the prayer is the prayer addressed to God named Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord, in the Holy Spirit, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. So that all those names move around in the structure of the Eucharistic liturgy, that happens in the life of the church even before the doctrines are articulated at length and with coherence. And uh, Brother Israel uh, is going to find that out when he studies Irenaeus, because Irenaeus in the second century is one of the first and earliest witnesses we have at an attempt to, to start talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a way that can make sense uh, and keep intact a, what, what we'll see is the, happens in the liturgy, but is a concern of doctrine, namely keep intact the sense that we're dealing here with one God in but the name of the one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And those aren't three names for the same thing. <laughs> those are three names for, uh, language falters, but three names for uh, dimensions within God or for the very constitution of what God's own being is. Uh, we need these three names. Uh, but those aren't. My, my point here with you guys was not, those aren't basically thoughts. Mm. Those are what the church experiences in her celebration of the Eucharist as it was given to us by the Lord and as the scriptures themselves are used in the Eucharist and as the prayers of the church get, get formulated on the basis of, uh, of the church's experience of of the presence of the risen Lord as he is remembered in this memorial of his death. 
see how I just keep going. Yeah. But so uh, before we go into the the how that happens in the Eucharist, I'd like to ask a clarifying question. So as you're searching for a term, you're you're saying three names of God, and you're searching for a term, and you said dimensions, and you said language falters. Would you say that the best term that we have there is that? we learned from Dr. Q is, is persons, right? The three, three names for the three persons, but even that name, even that term also falters. So can you, can you talk about how the term person is applicable and how it limps? Well, I can, except that's way down inside doctrine okay. uh, and doctrine's development. So uh, that's, you know, that's, I didn't talk about that in the, in the class because that kind of language is developed only toward the end of the fourth century. Well, that's pretty far into the game. Huh? Gotcha. Yeah. And so we're trying to, we're trying to get a hold of something at an earlier stage here. Gotcha. But, yeah. But a, a brief answer to that can be certainly the word uh, is, is a person's is, is a, is a great word. Uh, there's another word, in Greek, hypostasis, uh, which um, is got to get, <laughs> I translate that in my funky kind of way, the way I translate those things. I, I want to say three real somethings, <laughs> you know, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I, but it's, it's like, it's like, yeah, this, this hypostasis, this person is the only instance of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the only instance of this in this case is the only instance of being God mm-hmm. and being within God in a relationship with two others. The father is from all eternity in a relationship with his son and with the Holy spirit and the son and spirit in a relationship with every way you want to push it around. That's what the word persons or hypostasis accomplishes. Uh, but you don't just say three persons, you say three persons in one God, mm-hmm. and not three persons like uh, you, me, and Brother Israel. Not because we, we uh, our existence uh, is not constituted by our relationship with each other mm-hmm. until we enter into our ecclesial communion. And then, in fact, our, we receive a new ecclesial identity. And we do have a new kind of relationship with each other. But that's not as persons, like three persons who, boy, they're certainly united, those three. It doesn't work that way in the Trinity. Mm-hmm. In the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, are the relationship that they have with one another. Well, so if you're the Father of this Trinity here, which one of us is the Son and which one is the Holy Spirit? you're rolled out of order by the question you can't do that (laughs) because uh the analogy of persons breaks down there yeah Yeah. well okay so thank you so um yeah thank you for bringing that focus back to the to the eucharist so this this language starts developing in the fourth century but of Mm -hmm. course that the liturgy was already being celebrated for four centuries so what um yeah, what, what happens in, in, in the early church that the, I'm trying to remember exactly the language that you use here, but that the, the in fact, I can, let me just share it because I thought it was real. Yeah, you said, 
in liter in the liturgy god's will for the world is accomplished and actualized so what is happening in the liturgy that is revealing the trinity yeah well that statement god's will for the world is accomplished and actualized that's allusion to the opening sentence of Dei Verbum, where we speak about it, please God to reveal both himself and the secret purposes or the mystery of his will. And that's where we began the whole class. And I said, and then it goes on to say, God's will is that human beings should have access uh, to God the Father through the word made flesh in the Holy Spirit, and so become partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. So what we, what, the way I distinguished that text was to say you've got two realities uh, or two objects that are revealed there, God himself and God's intentions for the world. God's in, but it's in God uh, actually uh, making happen his intentions for the world that we, f- we find ourselves dealing with the names Father, Son, and Spirit around the reality of God's initiative in, in Revelation. And so God's initiative in Revelation, in fact, uh, is his action in the world uh, through Israel, which culminates in Jesus, who is his Son, his eternal Son, become incarnate in our midst and accompanied by the Holy Spirit in that, in such a way as to bring us into his own relationship with the Father at a very deep level, uh, at a a level in which we are totally taken up into the person of Jesus. In such a way, our communion with him gives us his own relationship with the Father. And the Holy Spirit is all over that, as it were, making it happen. And so that the Eucharistic liturgy, in fact, uh, is, the, is the ritual shape of that reality. And in every generation, as this ritual shape gets passed down and is adhered to by the community, then uh, the, uh, the ritual shape begins to become clearer that it's language directed to the Father, through the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it's not only language directed to the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's action. It's the act. What action? Ultimately, it's the action of the meal that the Son gave us as a memorial, hiding in that command, do this in memory of me, hiding in the command, all that, all that we're flushing out of it now. Namely, that when we do this meal in, in memory of him, a meal in which he himself addresses himself to God the Father in prayer and unites us with himself in that addressing himself to God the Father in prayer, then he, that, that becomes the shape of the Eucharistic liturgy. And so the action clarifies itself around that. Uh, the action also, uh, then language for Eucharistic prayers develop around that too. I had in my book, you weren't required to read it, but there's two chapters in there that I hope some of you read. Uh, it's called Uncovering the Dynamic Lex Orandi Lex Credendi in the Theology of Origin. And then another one with that, Uncovering the Dynamic Lex Orandi Lex Credendi in the Apostolic Tradition of Hippolytus. And in both of those, I study uh, t- 
two theologians that are well before Nicaea, mm -hmm. namely Origen and the text represented in Hippolytus, and, and uh, see how uh, they are, are constructing prayer texts. Uh, so we've got second century prayer texts, quite elaborate and very clearly uh, Trinitarian in the form that I've described it. So there we go, something like that. Uh, Abigermi also did a, a similar project conveniently with Irenaeus where he did the uncovering the Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi in St. Irenaeus' preaching. Uh, so what is he preaching? I forgot I did that. Yeah, I have it right, I have it right here. <laughs> uh, You've written more books than we can remember. Than you, than and read. Remember. Oh, well, there's only an article, but no, good, yeah. But, I wonder um, I know something about this. But that, yeah, there you go. Yeah. But one thing that comes out really clearly here as he brings out with both Origen and Hippolytus is, you know, something that for me was really impressive. When we look at the liturgy, uh, we, you already said this, Father, but we're, we're speaking to somebody, but we're not speaking as ourselves. So it's not me, Brother Israel, speaking to God. It's somehow Christ is speaking. And most powerfully, of course, in the words of the priest, who's saying things like, this is my body. This, well, he's not saying that as his own self. He's saying that it is Christ. And then, you know, in Romans, we hear that, you know, the Holy Spirit's the one who's allowing us to call out Father, Abba. So all of a sudden, we have these three people. Um, it's probably not a good idea to use that word, people. But these three somethings, as yeah. Abba Jeremy said, right. these real, real yeah. somethings mm -hmm. acting in the liturgy. Uh, the Son in offering himself to the Father, who is both hearing and accepting the offerings of the son, but in the course of the liturgy, the priest calls upon the Holy spirit, mm. you know, so the Holy spirit is the one who's bringing down the presence of the son on these gifts, so on and so forth. And then it seems like we start from, from that reality there. Cause you'd ask, you know, what did the, what happened in the early church that they start wrestling with it in this way. And then we turn to the scriptures from out of the liturgy and we say, well, Christ was always talking about his father. And then at some point he starts talking about this spirit that he's sending uh, once he has ascended to the Father. So even the scriptures start sounding Trinitarian. Mm. Even the scriptures have like these little moments where it becomes very clear that when we speak God, we have to somehow say Father, we have to say Son, we have to say Spirit. And you see that really strongly in Irenaeus, in, which I mentioned because I've been spending time with him. You see that very strongly with Irenaeus. Whenever he uses the word Trinity, whenever he uses the word Persons, but he's uncovering the same thing in both the scriptures and in Eucharist and in baptism that when we've said God, we have to say Father, we have to say Son, and we have to say Holy Spirit. And what he points to are actually three very key moments, uh, creation, salvation, and the life of the church. If he, when he spends time talking about creation, it's basically saying, look, there we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when we talk about God. When he looks at the events of salvation, so the life of Christ, he says, look, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he starts pointing out all those times that they show up as distinct actors. And then he says, well, let's look at the life of the church now. And he's talking in the year 160, 170 or so. And he says, let's look at the life of the church in her worship and liturgy and baptism. There you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's drawing out this connection 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the liturgy, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit at the moment of creation. Yeah. See, that's beautiful. And then eventually that becomes a principle, not in Irenaeus yet, uh, but it's, I mean, you, can, you can see the, the thought of the church moving toward this. But by the fourth century, you have a principle that says, never does one member of the Trinity act without the others. It's sort of like, mm-hmm. it's sort of like okay, here we got the incarnation. Okay, son, that's your job. Bye, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come around later, Father <laughs> and Spirit say. No, uh, if the son is incarnate, the Father and the Spirit are involved in that. Uh, you see it in that this is uh, the father so loved the world that he gave his son conceived of the Holy, by the Holy spirit, you know, so uh, you get us, there comes to be a great spotlight on the figure of Jesus, but the, the, to read Jesus at depth, you always have to get to the Trinity. Otherwise you've missed the whole point. He has come to reveal the father to us and to put us in a relationship with the father. And he does that by doing what he and the father alone can do, which is to give us their Holy spirit for, to, to seal us into that relationship. So this is beautiful. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is where we spend our contemplative life in prayer. And we live our whole life out of this. It's, it's so lovely, really. I have a question for Brother Israel. When you were talking about how the scriptures sounds, start sounding Trinitarian, are you suggesting, and I don't know if we have the, I guess the science to know it with exact precision, but are you suggesting that the writing of the scriptures. So maybe in a brute way, something like Jesus, witness of Jesus, Mm -hmm. celebrating of the liturgy in the celebrating of the liturgy, the life of the Trinity is being actualized. Then in that, or as that's happening, the scriptures are being written. And then by the time certain books or certain chapters of certain books are written, the language that is describing what is happening in the liturgy is already developing to a point where the language of the liturgy starts to sound, the language of the scripture starts to sound Trinitarian because the life of the liturgy is already being trinitarian i see i yeah i think that's that's sort of what i'm finding in irenaeus so yes that's what i'm suggesting with the maybe the distinction it's not so much that the language of the scriptures is trinitarian as a direct influence of the specific language of the liturgy but because in the liturgy there is that very you know, unavoidable Trinitarian reality staring at you right in the face through the language, definitely, uh, principally even, and in the actions. But because I think, and never Jeremy can correct me, but the Christian community that celebrates the Eucharist is placed 
in a very explicit relationship with the Trinity through Christ, where am I going with this? Then later, when the scriptures are actually being written down, it's not so much that they're taking language from the liturgy and like writing it down in scripture, but they're almost like finding the same, it's the same mystery that both the, the scriptures and the liturgy are grounded in. Mm-hmm. I think is more what I'm trying to, it's a long about way of what I'm trying to say, I think. Maybe maybe this can help, you know, we've got to try to clean it up or we'll get lost yeah, here. Please. Uh, the, uh, the scriptures uh, bear testimony to God's action mm. in history. Uh, and they bear testimony to that through the centuries. And we count that an inspired testimony by which we mean God himself is working in the human authors that bear witness to uh, the, the reality of Israel's historical existence. And the same is happening uh, as that whole story reaches its climax in the figure of Jesus and ultimately in his death and resurrection. So scriptures are still bearing witness to this action of God. And, and after the spirit of the risen Jesus is poured out on the church and bringing us into a share of this divine life, then the church, which is formed by this action of, of Father, Son, and Spirit of, in the history of Israel, climaxing in this figure, then the church is able to, first of all, produce a new scripture, which is the New Testament, bearing witness to that reality, and, and then is able also to continue to proclaim the scriptures in the liturgical assembly, and as that happens, then the, it's a kind of a position of hindsight. Now, as we look back at all of the witness through the centuries of Israel's story, it's possible from the hindsight perspective in which we stand to see the Trinity at work in all of that. So that before the Trinity is in the scriptural text, the Trinity is active in Israel's history. So the, the, neither the scriptural text nor the liturgy is the ultimate foundation. Uh, the ultimate foundation is God's initiative of revelation in history. And scriptures witness to that, as does the liturgy. Both in Israel's history and also in Brother Israel's history. Well, yes, in that he's caught up in, in the church. <laughs> <laughs> that's it so the way you put it made, made a lot of sense of why why we wouldn't abandon the Old Testament at the coming of Christ why we wouldn't ever abandon the New Testament you know centuries later because it's it's pointing to a history so to a limited finite order in which something infinite and much larger than history was at work. And it still somehow manages to bear that infinite reality to us today. Yeah. It, the, the scriptures themselves are a part of the history and they shape that history. Mm-hmm. 
Israel lives eventually by her scriptures and by the vision of the divine presence in her life that the scriptures as they're we could say as they're being written as they're being enacted uh happen so that she lives by the torah she lives by the words of the prophets and those are written down in scripture so in the the it's not just history then something written then the liturgy no these are all entwined with each other and the proclamation of scriptures even within the assembly of israel uh and and the church in imitation of that it's the proclamation of the scriptures in the assembly where we realize that these this history that is remembered here is also defining the here and now of this assembly that's what we were calling earlier just to make a link for you the event character of the proclamation of the word so i have two two lines of thought or two ways of proceeding one is to ask another question from my reading that would take us in one direction but the other is a more open-ended question just realize recognizing that you father abbot you like to you have a structure as to how you teach the course and how you how you teach each master theme and we've maybe touched on some of the aspects some of the elements that you like to teach but maybe to open it to you and say where given the way that you like to teach this theme where would you go next if you were teaching this course right now well it's just where i go right with you guys i'm i'm just going with you i i want to read what i did when we started this uh paragraph 234 of the catechism mm -hmm. of the catholic church uh because that's just that's a tremendous paragraph and 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 it contains a method for how to to advance in understanding of this mystery I'll read it in, a, in part and comment. The mystery of the most holy trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It is the mystery of God in himself. So when I read that to you guys, you may remember I said, listen, if we want to be theologians then, we surely have to be able to talk about the central mystery of Christian faith and life. So that's that. And then it's the source of all the other mysteries of the faith, the light that enlightens them. Uh, and then this, this sentence, this, here's where the method comes. The whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which, and then the sentence is going to finish. I'll, I'll come back to it. But the whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which we could say, by which the Trinity reveals itself. Okay, it says it a little more elegantly than that. But so the whole history of salvation, that's what I've been talking about. Israel's history culminating in Jesus is identical with God revealing himself as Trinity. But here's how it's put a little more eloquently. The whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which the one true God 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reveals himself to men and reconciles and unites with himself those who turn away from sin. So, see, that's a principle. Now, I, that's what we've been talking about. I just want you to see that this, I'm not making these ideas up. Uh, they're not my own. You know. <laughs> this is Catholic teaching, okay? But what, what we're learning to do is use Catholic teaching as a deep tool for exploring the mystery. So where I would go from there is uh, start digging in to the structure of the Eucharistic liturgy itself and show how this is happening. Because the catechism at this point doesn't make this move, but though it does later. But what I do with this is to say, okay, you've got Trinitarian doctrine, which is rooted in the action of the divine economy, the action of history, okay? Uh, the, the link in that is the, the Eucharistic liturgy, because the Eucharistic liturgy is structured in the same Trinitarian form that the history of salvation itself is structured in. So what I would do is pick up the missal, pick up uh, your experience of celebrating Mass. And uh, this is what I've done on the course outline. I outline uh, movement in two directions. The one is a movement of God toward the world, and the other is the movement of the world toward God. Remember, we got this from Corbon's book, The Wellspring of Worship. Okay, so what, what the scriptures uh, teach us to do uh, with our Christian faith is that the whole history of the world can be described as a movement of God toward the world and in Jesus a movement of the world toward God. Now, show me that. I'd like it. And I say, this is what's happening when the church celebrates the Eucharist. So on the course outline, you have uh, those two directions, but those two directions not said just vaguely God to the world and the world to God, but let's do it in Trinitarian language. The Father gives himself through his Son to the world in the church, and the Spirit illumines and vivifies every dimension of this gift. So that's my description of one direction in the liturgy. The, liturgy. the Eucharistic liturgy isn't understood if we just sort of vaguely go, oh, here we are with God. No. Here, God gives us his son. And we receive the gift of the son. And we receive, when he gives the son, we may not notice it or put our attention on it, but when he gives the Son, we know now, he always accompanies the gift of the Son with the Holy Spirit, which enables us to understand the gift and to respond to it. So that action of giving the Son to who? To whom? To this assembly. He gives the Son to this assembly. So this assembly isn't the whole world. It's just this assembly. But from the world, this assembly has been gathered for what God would want to do for the whole world. And 
and it receives the gift of the sun. That's, I'm describing what's happening when the liturgy of the word is read. God is coming into the world by giving his son, and we are receiving that word made flesh. And we will, and the spirit is all over that. The spirit I have in the outline here illumines and vivifies every dimension of this gift. The spirit is all over that in such a way that we will respond to the father's gift here and now because he gives us his son here and now. And the way we will respond to the father's gift is with thanksgiving addressed to God. And that's the second part, part on the outline. The church responds in thanksgiving by offering to the Father the very gift she has received, namely the Son. And so why would we give the gift back? Well, we give the gift back because we know in our encounter with the Son that the Son is not only the Father's Son, but has made himself to be in this amazing coming toward us, has made himself to be the Son of Mary, a human being. So he is he's not only God, but he is a human being. And so he's a human being that can be in right relationship with God in a fallen world, a world that, 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 that has broken in a, in a huge and fundamental way, its relationship with God. Now that relationship is repaired in the human being, Jesus, who is also God. And so we, we are taken up into the Son. We are made one body with him, and we offer ourselves with him to the Father. So that's that's the world going back to God, and the Spirit is all over that. I have it in the outline. The Spirit affects the transformation of the church's gift into the body and blood of the Son. Now, all that action can be picked apart, as we've already done on in these podcasts and as we did in class, but you'll never, I don't think you can tire of going over it and just seeing, my God, this is amazing. So, uh, we've distinguished here not just God in the world, but we've distinguished God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and within the world, we've distinguished the church. So, because because the reality is that the whole world, in fact, is not um, is has not received the gift, and so is not giving itself back. But we know as believers that this is God's intention for the whole world and we desire it for the whole world. And so all of the baptized who are there with their belief being brought up into Christ, in fact, are there, I call this with you guys, I call this the priesthood of the baptized. They are representing the rest of the world uh, in this act of worship and thanksgiving, in this act of reception, uh, which will also transform them and give them the energy to, to be love in the world, which is what the church is meant to be. Those, um, those bells are reminding me of the bells at mass saying, this is something really important here, guys, pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. So brother Israel, I uh, know you have really deep responses to everything. Abba Jeremy was just saying, <laughs> I could see it. I could see the wheels turning in your mind. Let's but, uh, can we push pause right here and uh, and then but we'll pick it up right here in the next episode. Sounds okay. good, yeah. Okay, bye.
Thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, where you'll receive notices about new episodes, including occasional bonus content, updates from the seminarians, images with quotes from Abba Jeremy that you can share on social media, and also our new segment called Words from the Fathers, where we share a bit of wisdom from one of the church fathers, usually connected to the episode. You can sign up by visiting our website, www.theologyatmountangel.com, theologyatmtangel.com.